This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One new book from Verso that might be of interest is Futures of Black Radicalism, edited by Gay Teresa Johnson and Alex Lubin. Black rebellion has returned. Dramatic protests have risen up in scores of cities and campuses. There is renewed engagement with the history of black radical movements and thought. Here, key intellectuals, inspired by the new movements and by the seminal work of the scholar Cedric J. Robinson, recall the powerful tradition of black radicalism while defining new directions for the activists and thinkers it inspires. This book makes clear that new black radical politics is thoroughly internationalist and redraws the links between black resistance and anti-capitalism. Futures of Black Radicalism features the key voices in this new intellectual wave, including Greg Burris, Jordan T. Camp, Angela Davis, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, and many more. Futures of Black Radicalism, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Last week, we aired my interview with Barbara and Karen Fields on their seminal essay collection, Racecraft, The Soul of Inequality in American Life. Our discussion covered a lot of ground, but centered on the issue of how certain ways of discussing and debating identity are, as Barbara put it, a rope-a-dope distraction that keep us in thrall to the mystification of a centralized race, categories created by none other than racism itself, and that are an obstacle for people recognizing common interests and then building powerful movements to transform society. But identity politics need not mean the endless hot takes on Rachel Dolezal that it has come to mean for so many today. Forty years ago, a group of black feminists, coined the term identity politics in the Combahee River Collective Statement. For them, it meant something quite different. It was a way to identify the various ways that capitalism, racism, patriarchy, and homophobia created a set of interlocking oppressions. And the point of identifying how those systems operated together was not to create an itemized politics of particularity, as is too often the case today, but rather to create a framework for solidarity. My guest today is Kienga Yamada-Taylor, the author of the new book, How We Get Free, Black Feminism and the Combahee River Collective. Among other things, the book, Out from Haymarket, is a series of interviews with Combahee's authors. I encourage you to listen to this interview alongside and in conversation with my interview with the Field Sisters. Together, I think they lay out a powerful blueprint from somewhat different but I think highly compatible perspectives for how to analyze and then defeat both capitalism and racism. At the time of this recording, we're super close to meeting our goal of 700 supporters on Patreon.com this calendar year. But the one thing that would be even better than meeting that goal would be to dramatically surpass it. So, if you haven't done so yet, 
and you spend a few hours a week listening to the show, please chip in to pay for the left-wing media you consume. $5 a month goes a long way on our end. So take a quick sec at patreon.com slash the dig and support this podcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Thank you, and here's the show with Kianga Yamada-Taylor, assistant professor of African-American studies at Princeton University, and also the author of another book you should read from Haymarket called From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. Kianga Yamada-Taylor, welcome back to The Dig. Thank you so much. Very glad to be here. I want to start by asking you first to give an overview of what the Combahee River Collective Statement was, and then second, how you first encountered it yourself. It's a really remarkable document. Sure. So the statement is uh, published in 1977, and, um, you know, that's part of the reason why uh, we did the book this year to mark the 40th anniversary. Um, but the the statement uh, was published originally that year because the the women of the, the Combahee River Collective were asked by Zila Eisenstein, um, who is a socialist feminist, and um, I believe at the time was uh, uh, an instructor at Ithaca College, and she was compiling an anthology of uh, socialist feminist uh, texts. And so she asked uh, the the collective if they would um, <clears throat> put their ideas on on paper um, in terms of what were the distinguishing characteristics of black feminism um, that you know, they, they thought was important to articulate. Um, and so they, they put those ideas down, uh, in what became the Combahee River Collective, uh, statement, which reads almost like a a manifesto of, um, radical black feminism. Um, and I say radical black feminism because, uh, the Combahee uh, was an organization that formed uh, a few years earlier in 1974 um, as a left-wing split from the National Black Feminist Organization, um, which they sort of, in my discussions with uh, Barbara Smith and Demita Frazier uh, and Beverly Smith, Barbara Smith's twin sister, um, you know, referred to as a kind of uh, liberal black uh, version of the National Organization uh, of Women. Um, The MBFO formed uh, in reaction to what they believe to be uh, a a lack of understanding um, of the way that racism impacted the lives of black women within the larger uh, feminist movement. Uh, But for the women of Combahee, the a recognition of uh, the fact that racism impacted the lives of black women uh, was not enough, but they, you know, had an analysis um, that was not particularly unique to themselves, but uh, an analysis that uh, came out of a kind of 
the left of uh, uh, black feminist organizations uh, that link this oppression to um, to capitalism, uh, and and they you know certainly identified themselves as as socialists and revolutionaries, um, and so I think that uh, you know the the contribution that the the Combahee River Collective um, makes in that sense is not just uh, important to uh, sort of identifying a radical anti-capitalist strain within. Um, the feminist movement at this time, but is really an important document for uh, the the revolutionary or the radical left uh, itself in terms of understanding the um, importance. And this is a particularly important at this time of the the 1960s and the 1970s. But it's really a demand upon the the, the revolutionary left to understand the uh, particular ways that oppression uh, affects the lives of um, uh, black women, of brown women, um, and, and to really appreciate the meaning of what they termed <clears throat> interlocking um, oppressions that uh, Kimberly Crenshaw would later identify uh, as intersectionality. Um, and so there, there's so many, it's a relatively short document, uh, but um, it, it's dense in meaning and uh, really sort of uh, raises so many critical questions that remain important um, for the left to uh, engage with today. Combahee coined two terms, one of which you just mentioned, that were really important at the time and that came to be extremely influential later on. The first that you just mentioned was interlocking oppression, which predates Crenshaw's coining of the similar term intersectionality in 1989. And they also coined the term identity politics. Mm -hmm. Both terms, I think it's important to highlight, were coined by a collective of black Marxist feminists or -hmm. black socialist feminists, at least. But both have really taken on a bit of a life of their own over the years. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to start by asking you about identity politics, which has for many come to mean a sort of hierarchy of oppression, something that's about particularity more than solidarity, Mm -hmm. something that is somehow opposed to class politics. And not only does this run counter to Combahee's socialist analysis, but it also runs counter, you note, to long-running Marxist analysis more generally. Lenin, after all, identified special oppression of Mm -hmm. national minorities. So what did Kombahi mean by identity politics, and what does it come to mean today? So th- this was probably one of the most um, fascinating discoveries uh, for me, encountering the, the concept of identity politics within um, the, the, the statement and seeing it as something completely different from uh, that which had been become a popular way of, uh, you know, really identifying the exclusivity of uh, uh, the struggles around oppression, or as you say, the particularity um, that, you know, and the way that the term has has come to be understood uh, is the ways in which it is impossible for those who do not experience uh, a particular oppression to 
uh, ever be fully invested in any struggle to end it. Um, and that, you know, is uh, really a, a rejection of the intention of the, the women of Combahee. Uh, and to some extent that, you know, that happens with all ideas. You know, famously, uh, Karl Marx commented uh, uh, near his death that uh, he too was no longer a Marxist, given the, uh, the, the bastardization of uh, what Marxism had come to mean. Um, <laughs> but what the women from Combahee were talking about was the way that the personal experiences, the identities um, of uh, the oppressed uh, is, was central to their process of uh, radicalization um, and became an entry point um, into political activism, which is to say that uh, the experiences of black women or black women who were also lesbians um, that those experiences as uh, African-American in a profoundly racist society, as women um, in a profoundly sexist society, as lesbians in a profoundly homophobic society, uh, were in fact radicalizing because your, your life experiences put you uh, in constant conflict um, with the society uh, in which you were living. Um, and that, that those... Uh, uh, conflicts and contradictions were not just enough unto themselves, uh, uh, but that they created uh, entry points into political um, activism. And so um, part of that is, is the realization that, um, you know, people don't just get politicized over issues of doctrine, um, that it's not just, you know, an, an idea that makes sense. Uh, that compels you to become political. I mean, for some people it may be, um, but there's typically some uh, overlap between that and one's own experiences uh, uh, of uh, oppression and exploitation in some manner um, that uh, compel people uh, to try to do something uh, about it. And so in, in some ways this was an, an, an identity politics for the women of Combahee uh, was a literal phrase, uh, that their identities became the basis of their uh, political uh, consciousness and then um, political activism. Um, but what is also important and what is connected to that uh, and what often um, gets left out of that e equation uh, is that for the women of Combahee, um, that the politics of a solidarity uh, what they referred to as coalition politics was also important, um, which is, and if you read the, uh, the book is a reprint, How We Get Free is a reprint of uh, the Combahee statement um, in addition to interviews with the three authors um, of the statement, Demita Frazier, uh, Beverly Smith, and Barbara Smith. Um, and one of the things that they talk um, they don't just write about in the statement 40 years ago, but they talk about uh, in a very urgent way today um, is a rejection of the idea of exclusivity or particularity um, or what some might talk about uh, colloquially as the Press and Olympics. And instead, 
uh, they talk about the importance of solidarity. Uh, Barbara Smith referred to it uh, conceptually as the uh, referring to uh, uh, Sherry Moragua's book, uh, this uh, this bridge called My Back. Uh, that this was about how you um, overcome the differences in experiences. That how you overcome the differences uh, between people uh, to link together in a common struggle uh, to end a system uh, that uh, thrives off the uh, oppression of others. Um, and so the that, I think, is an important aspect of um, their political analysis, that it was critical to identify the specific ways that Black women uh, experienced oppression, because it was a, an experience that was completely left out. Uh, Barbara Smith um, edited a, an important book in feminist studies called All of the Women uh, Are White and All of the Men Are Black, But Some of Us Are Brave. Um, and the, the phrase is to really highlight the ways that um, Black women's experiences have been uh, uh, eliminated, even at a time when um, Black women are radicalizing uh, because of their experiences around um, identity, but that um, in and of itself was not enough. Uh, the coalition building on the basis upon which uh, there was commonality um, in struggle, but also on the basis uh, of um, raising the, the level of consciousness about these experiences. So not solidarity on the lowest common denominator. What is it that we uh, uh, can all uh, agree on, but um, how you know? How do you get people to recognize uh, that the oppression of Black women, uh, that the attack on uh, uh, the reproductive freedom of Black women, that forced sterilization, um, that the, uh, the the wages uh, offered to to Black women uh, ensured a life of poverty? How do you get other people to recognize those struggles and take those struggles seriously uh, was really the the crux of um, how solidarity could be organized. Not what is the easiest thing that we can agree on, but what is the most you know hidden thing, the difficult thing that you can get other people to recognize um, as the basis of forming uh, coalitions. Uh, was seen as just as important uh, to understanding identity politics uh, as a recognition of the ways that identity uh, radicalized uh, black and brown women in the first place. It was it was about experience as a, a basis and and place where politics were formed, but not that that certain experiences made particular political struggles the proprietary exclusive interests of particular people. In fact, which is kind of what it has come to mean for many, in fact, they meant quite the opposite. Well, I mean, Barbara Smith says uh, quite forthrightly um, in the interview that, you know, some of the, the notion of exclusivity and the idea that other people will never take up someone's struggle is really a, a, a recipe for inactivity and passivity. 
Um, because if if that is true, if it is impossible for uh, groups of people who do not experience a particular oppression uh, to take up that struggle, then, you know, to some extent, we have to ask what any of us are doing. Uh, because <laughs> You know, for African-Americans who are 12 percent of the population or for Latinos who are 13 percent of the population. So for minority groups, um, the idea that uh, we alone will be able to uh, initiate, uh, carry out and wage our own struggle um, in opposition to the rest of the population, you know, really creates the conditions for uh, impossibility. And if you want to ask people uh, to do the impossible, then you really are asking people to not do anything, um, to not actually engage in struggle. And so this was not, you know, the the, the politics of blind faith uh, and hope, but it was really also borne out, I think, in, in their experiences uh, as feminist activists uh, in Boston um, in the in the early 1970s, where, you know, as as with most uh, uh, working class theorists, their ideas are shaped by their experiences. They're not pulled out of thin air. They're not um, pure abstractions. And so uh, the idea of um, uh, uh, that coalition building um, was possible, even across uh, racial lines, um, was something that was borne out in their experiences around uh, the abortion rights uh, struggle, it was borne out in their experiences uh, in the anti-sterilization campaigns that they were involved in. It was borne out in their experiences uh, in efforts, the, you know, the very nascent efforts to take on issues of uh, domestic violence and domestic um, uh, abuse. And that's not to say that these efforts were without uh, complication, that they were without argument, uh, uh, intense frustration. Um, and, and all that goes into uh, real uh, organizing um, and, you know, real coalition work that anyone who is engaged with knows, you know, it can be a very frustrating um, uh, process. But uh, it's it, it's one that is necessary if we're going to be able to actually um, build the kinds of movements that are necessary uh, to confront a political establishment. Uh, that, you know, is also rife with division, but can absolutely close ranks when it comes to protecting their interests uh, and subverting ours, as we are all witnessing with uh, the, the, the antics surrounding the attempts to pass this horrific tax bill uh, uh, most recently. They are willing to put aside whatever um, bickering and, and, you know, minor differences of degree that they may have uh, to completely upend uh, the lives of working class people. And so for our side to actually be able to have uh, any chance at all, uh, we have got to you know, figure out uh, how to confront these political challenges uh, and, and attempt to overcome them, not to avoid them, not to act as if they don't uh, uh, exist, as if Different experiences don't exist, different levels of consciousness, uh, different levels of political uh, awareness and, and all of that. But the, the issue is not whether or not there are differences. The issue is how do we overcome them? And for the women of Combahee, uh, the way that you at least begin to uh, address these <coughs> is to um, 
uh, is to put those differences out uh, on the on the on the table uh, for everyone uh, to see um, and challenge uh, people to uh, to to raise their political level to understand uh, the relationship between the oppression of Black lesbians um, and the working class overall. What you just said makes me think about something that I was discussing with Barbara and Karen Fields recently, which is mm-hmm. the really fatalistic pessimism about the sort of permanency and inher- inherentness of white supremacy to the United States in mm-hmm. Ta-Nehisi Coates's recent work. And not to like pick on Coates, but more to ask wh- why that's so salient for his readers, both white and black and otherwise? To me, that it's, it's fairly straightforward. Um, we have not had a, um, I mean, there are a couple of things. One is we've not had a, a successful, really, social movement um, in this country in two generations. That's one part. Um, the second part is related, of course, which is that the labor movement, the working class movement, is is almost non-existent in its in its form as labor. Uh, and so you get, you know, the immigrant rights movement, aspects of Black Lives Matter, all of these sort of social explosions, of course, are are full of working class people. Um, they're, you know, they're organized by working class people. Uh, uh, they're participated in uh, by working class people. But in terms of the movement itself, um, where is it? I mean, even if we go back to this, this tax, uh, this tax bill um, over the last, uh, you know, few weeks, this is the largest attack on the working class and poor in this country. And perhaps more than a generation. Uh, just where a massive it? redistribution of wealth to the rich. From from the bottom to the top, where is the labor movement? Like, where is organized labor and their response to this naked money grab from the richest people in this country, from the poorest? It is obscene. And so, when you know, when when the Marxist left, the re- the revolutionary left, you know, talk about the the working class as the the agent of change and um, uh, the, the role of, uh, working, you know, working class struggle, uh, in social transformation. I mean, people look at you like you have six heads What are you talking about? because there's no example within their lifetime, you know, within yeah, the last two generations that you can point to and say, that's what I mean. That's what I'm talking about. You know, and some of us who've taken uh, you know, the, who see this as important. And so we've, we've gone out and learned about some of this history. Um, and, and so we have those examples to uh, point to and to rely on. It's an abstraction uh, in our society today. Um, and so to me, that these are the, the two things that the absence of uh, uh, successful social movements that have broken through. And so you can look at a movement um, like Black Lives Matter and recognize that it has certainly raised a level of awareness about police violence and abuse 
um, in our society. It has raised a certain level of awareness that um, these are not just, uh, this is not just a question of a bad cop uh, here or there, um, but that there is something systemically wrong with policing in the United States. And at the end of the day, the police are on pace to kill the same number of people that they killed when this movement first uh, erupted uh, three years ago. Um, and so to that extent, it's fair to ask what, you know, what has actually been uh, uh, systemically accomplished um, with this with this movement. Now, I think that there are things that, that you can uh, point to that are not unimportant, but in the larger scale of things, you can look at that you can look at the attack on immigrants, you can look at what is happening socially now, and you combine that with the failure of the labor movement to even uh, express anything in opposition uh, uh, to this massive attack on working class people and come to the conclusion that no matter what we do, there is an impossibility uh, of being able uh, to win, uh, that their side is you know, all powerful, um, and that really uh, you begin to question whether or not there is an alternative uh, to what is happening um, in this country. And so you really do have to have some sense of history um, and some analysis uh, to make sense of the world that we live in. Um, and so, you know, Coates uh, and, and people that, um, kind of gravitate or adhere to uh, a, uh, a much more perhaps cynical uh, look at, at, at history and, and draw, um, you know, cynical conclusions. Um, it's, it's not, I mean, it's not particularly surprising to me and I understand it even though um, I don't, I don't agree with it. Uh, but it's not given the, the scale attack the, the absolute confusion um, about this last uh, presidential election, um, and you know what I think is is a non, you know that there's no serious engagement with really trying to figure out um, uh, what is happening um, in this country right now. That some of the easier explanations that it's just racism, um, you know, it fits. It's it's a uh, what do they call it? It's it's common sense. Uh, it's impressionism, uh, but it doesn't. I, in my opinion, it it fails to really uh, dig deeper than that to get at the root of uh, the 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 intense polarization um, and uh, volatility that exists in American society right now. I think that's a really smart analysis because it is it is common sense. You just have to listen to. It. Ever, any words that come out of Trump's mouth to understand that racism is a part of what's happening, but where Coates's analysis falls short is that racism is necessary to a solid analysis of what's going on right now, but not sufficient to explain the totality of what's going on and how we got here. And it also won't, there is no denying that, you know, most of the most, if not all, of the people who voted for Trump are racist. To me, the, the issue is not that. It's is do we see racism as a permanent fixed state of, you know, 
the character of someone, or do we see it as uh, as all ideas as something that is fluid uh, that has the capacity to to transform um, under a given set of of circumstances or conditions? I mean, I think that you know Trump and and that whole crew think that they can just keep talking about you know. Mexican immigrants and black criminals and Muslim terrorists, uh, and that, you know, that, that, that is all that they have to do. That's what Trump means when he says that he can shoot someone on fifth Avenue and it won't have any impact, uh, uh, on, you know, how people, how people view him. And that's what all of these millionaires and billionaires think. They think working class white people are, are idiots who can just survive on, uh, uh, race baiting. Um, and, you know, picking on black players in the NFL. And, you know, for a while, that, that can get you a bunch of good laughs and it can, you know, boost your approval rating on, on the, 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 the low end of the, the spectrum. You know, but at some point, people have to eat. At some point, people have to pay for the health care. And this bill that they are trying to rush through and the, the entire economic uh, agenda of the, the Trump administration is one that will put that in peril uh, for, you know, the, the, a, a, a number of people who may believe some aspect of what Donald Trump says about other people in the world, other non-white people. Um, but, you know, I think that part of this characterization um, is, has been, uh, you know, there's, confusion about who actually voted for Trump. I mean, somehow the, the white, quote unquote, working class white people have been saddled with the responsibility of having voted for Trump, even though uh, we see numerous uh, uh, exit polls that show that um, Trump supporters were uh, richer than, you know, the average population, all of that. Nevertheless, I think that even where uh, people have been, white people, white working class people have been willing to uh, buy into some of those ideas that um, I question the, the shelf life of them, uh, of, of those ideas as enough of an explanation. The problem for, I think, the left, and not the Democratic Party, but for... The left. <laughs> yeah, for, you know, even the broad left is, what do we say to them? Because if all we have to say to them is fuck you, then we're going to have a problem. And so I think that the left has to, uh, uh, you know, has to, without conceding to racism, has to spell out what the Trump agenda is and what, you know, how it will be that working class white people, working class black people, working class Latinos um, can actually get their needs met, uh, can achieve a quality of life. And that is through collective struggle. And of course, it's always easier to say than to actually, uh, uh, than to sometimes uh, to, to carry out. But we have to figure out how to build those coalition politics. We have to figure out how to get African-American workers to see the struggles of immigrant workers as their own. We have to get immigrant workers to understand the ways that black workers are demonized. We have to get, 
you know, immigrants and, and, you know, Mexican workers and black workers to see the ways that Muslims are demonized uh, and how in all of those situations, um, the demonization is intact to keep people uh, uh, from coming together on things that unite them and things, you know, and things that uh, uh, reflect their interests. And I think the same thing um, for working class white people, because one thing that we are seeing is the face of, of poverty in this country has always been um, black. As more and more white people begin to uh, be seen as impoverished, and all those questions are raised by the opioid uh, question uh, and the opioid issue, uh, you, you begin to see how the Republican Party is also demonizing working class and poor white people. Uh, there's Charles Murray's new book, Losing Ground, which uses the same uh, uh, stereotypes uh, that uh, he used for African-Americans. It talks about the lack of religion, uh, the broken families, um, the, the moral uh, uh, valley of poor and working class white people uh, as explanations for uh, either opioid use or, or their disproportionate ranks in poverty. Uh, J.D. Vance's horrible book, Hillbilly Elegy, just reaches the same stereotypes about the culture of poverty that have been used to frame black poverty and just uses them to frame white poverty. Um, so you, you, you see some of the same uh, uh, ways that um, black people have been demonized, being used to uh, try to culturally shape our understanding of opioid use and growing uh, numbers of poverty uh, among white people. Um, and so the, the left has to be able to highlight and show these things and offer a political alternative and not just scorn and acrimony. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on patreon.com. Hey, obviously you are listening to The Dig Radio. As you probably know, we have started doing a second weekly episode. To keep that going, we really need your support, by which I mean your money. So please hit pause and go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and make a monthly contribution. We really appreciate it, and we can't do this show without our listener support. So thank you. And now, back to the show. I want to talk about the other really durable term that Kombahi coined, which we discussed briefly at the top, interlocking oppression. And for Kombahi, I think that's about building stronger bonds of solidarity between people by having them recognize, you write, how the different struggles were related to each other and connected under capitalism. Tell me a little bit about what Kumbahi meant by interlocking oppression and what interlocking oppression and intersectionality have come to mean to people on the liberal left today. Has it, has it met the same misinterpretive fate as identity politics? The thing with, with interlocking um, oppressions, it was, this was a, a, an idea that had been recognized um, by 
black women who identified in some way or another as feminists um, for for decades. So Anna Julia Cooper, uh, who is a, a black female public intellectual um, from the South in the 19th century, you know, talked about the issue of the the combined issues of being both a woman and being Negro um, in a society that devalued both. Um, Fran Bill, um, who uh, was a forebearer, uh, a recent forebearer to the uh, women of Combahee, uh, talked about double um, and triple jeopardy, uh, meaning that um, Black women uh, suffered uh, as a result of gender discrimination, racial discrimination, uh, and in the case of uh, uh, triple uh, oppression, uh, uh, discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. Um, and what uh, what it was implicit in that and what Pombahi made explicit uh, was the ways that class also um, uh, compounded these already uh, existing uh, oppressions to create new forms of oppression that could not simply be captured uh, by talking about racism, uh, gender, or any of them unto themselves, uh, that they had to be understood uh, in their compounded form if we were going to come up with solutions um, that adequately responded to them, uh, which I think is, is absolutely important. So for example, I think I use this example in the the introduction of the book. So I, I introduced the book and then uh, we reprint the statement and then we have these interviews. But, um, you know, it, it's a common in feminist discourse to talk about how women make uh, 70% or 71% of what men make. Well, that unto itself would be uh, a, a, a fact that underscored uh, the inequality that defines women's lives in uh, U.S. society. But when you add black women into that on their own terms, then we're talking about um, black women making 64% of what uh, men make. Uh, and then if you talk about the experiences of uh, black women in Louisiana, for example, then we're talking about black women making 60% of what men make. And so that that's not a cry for attention. That's not, oh, you know, here, here we have the hierarchy of oppression and I want to be on top. That's to say that we need a policy that addresses what life is like for someone making 60% of what uh, uh, white men make, not someone who's making 70% of what white men make. And you can use that to go through, you know, uh, 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 any number of, uh, of disparities that separate black women's lives from the greater society, uh, especially when it comes to things like wealth accumulation, when it comes to jobs, um, access to public services, access to childcare, access to healthcare. We need policies that address that. And that is part of what is meant that if you attend to the needs of black women, you raise the living standards, the quality of life for everyone because they are the most uh, uh, oppressed um, in this in this society. And so you could say the same same thing about 
uh, the uh, immigrant women, you could say the same thing about indigenous women. Uh, the point is when you uh, raise the, the, the living standards and the quality of life for the most oppressed, lift the standards uh, and quality of life for everyone else. Um, and that, that's the, the, the dialectic at the heart uh, of the Combahee statement, uh, where uh, perhaps the most well-known um, aspect of the statement today is the notion that uh, if black women were free, then everyone would have to be free, uh, because the freeing of black women would necessarily end uh, the, the, the systems of oppression that um, uh, uh, keep them unfree. Um, and so that you know, is not, um, again, it's not an expression of, uh, of pessimism. It's a way out of the crisis. It's a um, theory of transformative political struggle. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so what does that have to do? Um, you know, I think that intersectionality um, was an effort to try to capture uh, the need for a specific understanding of black women's oppression. I mean, literally, uh, as a legal category um, in, in, in legal studies. I mean, Kimberly Crenshaw came to this uh, uh, framework because in litigation, there was no way to uh, calculate damages for black women because they were only seen um, uh, these... Uh, Litigation was only seen in terms of uh, damage done to black men or damage done to women. Um, and so intersectionality was a way to uh, try to uh, express, you know, the, the, the same idea that uh, there needed to be a particular way to measure uh, harm done to, to black women. Um, the way that the, the I don't even, I, to be honest, I don't even understand what intersectionality is. <laughs> when Hillary Clinton uses it, for example. I just, I, it feels like it has just come to mean that we need to include everything, that we just need to um, uh, attach a, a laundry list of oppressions, perhaps, together which so that everyone's like affirmed and recognized. Yeah, it's a form. It's I guess it's sort of been reduced to this kind of representation uh, that everyone is accounted for, um, with no attention paid to uh, the this. What to me is is most central, um, you know, or you know, is one of the the more important contributions of interlocking oppression is the way that uh, class intercedes with this and, and how it compounds uh, the existing oppression um, that, uh, that exists. Where now it just seems to have become a, a way of not leaving anyone out. It's, it's like an extension of diversity or multiculturalism. Uh, it's a way of saying that everyone uh, is included with no particular attention paid to, well, included in what? And, and what is it that we are trying to, uh, to, to say uh, is missing? What, it, what is it that we are trying to do? Um, it's, you know, it's just become another watered down 
uh, empty, um, uh, empty signifier of nothing. And, and that's, you know, that's, that's unfortunate. Um, and that is something again, that I think happens in the context of, uh, movements in retreat or defeat, uh, that have not really compelled people, um, to, has not really compelled any, uh, demands on anyone. So at, to me, it's symptomatic of a deeper um, problem that exists and the, the various attempts to, uh, to, to organize ourselves and to figure out what is it that we are actually fighting for? What is it that we are trying to accomplish here? Not to constantly, almost every episode of this show, return to the 2016 primary, but it was remarkable to have Hillary Clinton invoke intersectionality and and be praised for for doing so and then Bernie Sanders I think this was actually after the election he got a lot of flack for maybe not very artfully not very artfully put statement but that I think was ultimately actually far more intersectional when he said it is not good enough for someone to say I'm a woman vote for me what we need is a woman who has the guts to stand up to Wall Street to the insurance companies to the drug companies and then he said that having a black CEO is a good thing, but not so great for black and Latino workers if they were, if that black CEO was exploiting their workers. Um, and he got loads of crap for that. Bernie Sanders got loads of, of, of crap for, um, you know, of course he's been ham fisted with some things, but I think, you know, actually, um, spot on with others. Uh, and I think that that was an important statement um, uh, to make because it, it betrayed the, the emptiness uh, with which the, the, the phrase and the terminology um, uh, around intersectionality uh, has become. It doesn't necessarily mean that uh, we need to get rid of the, the notion of interlocking oppressions or... Um, what is meant by intersectionality. Uh, but I do think that there needs to be um, a, a rejection um, of this effort to, uh, to really just reduce the phrase to one, as I said before, of uh, representation. Um, that, you know, it's not enough to uh, say that, yes, we just need female faces in high places or women's faces in high places or black faces in high places. Um, because we've seen, I mean, this is the only, if we're using the, the Combehi statement as a kind of marker for where things are at, uh, today compared to where they were when the statement came out, I mean, one of the, the, the salient lessons that we've learned, uh, in the last 40, uh, to 45 years is that representation alone is insufficient. Um, the, the, Women's liberation movement, uh, second wave feminism, uh, did uh, to a certain extent um, pierce through uh, the, the the so-called uh, glass ceiling for some, um, you know. And so you have a representation of uh, women in positions of power and authority, not yet the presidency, um, but in other positions of power and authority um, in in finance, in uh, politics. 
uh, in most aspects of American life. This certainly has been the case um, in, uh, among African-Americans, too, um, where, you know, of course, in both of these situations, compared to uh, the continued stranglehold that white men have on um, positions of power, influence, and authority, uh, it's quite small. But unto itself, um, though there has been uh, a piercing of the very top of the um, the, the economic and power uh, 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 spectrum, but in, in also in both cases, that has not significantly altered the fate of the vast majority of women or the vast majority uh, of, of black or, and, and brown people in this country. And so the repetition that representation alone uh, is enough to overcome these has been proven to be patently false, and we have to move beyond that. Representation doesn't do things for the majority of people of whom these glass ceiling breakers are are icons for, but it does do a lot of accomplish a lot of political work, which is, I think, in celebrating diversity in the management of exploitation and imperial warfare. Or I think what that that does is legitimate those systems of exploitation and violence. And it also is is used to then abuse, you know, people who have not, quote unquote, succeeded. Right. I mean, that that's part of the reason of letting some get through. That's part of the reason, you know, of putting cracks in the in the ceiling, because if you continue to hold everyone at bay, then uh, it inevitably raises systemic questions, as it did in the 1960s uh, for African-Americans. So if you allow the development of. Uh, black politics, if you allow the development of uh, a black political establishment, of a black uh, elite, um, not only can you get those people to then uh, do the dirty work, you can get those people to govern the cities, you can get those people uh, to to govern the, the, the public programs, you can get those people to be the public face of austerity and managing crises on the backs of black people, which takes, you know, some of the pressure off of the, 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 the system itself. But you also get uh, the, the kind of examples that- Indirect rule. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. But you can also get the examples that are then pointed to as to the success of the system. Um, you know, that th- these are the people who worked hard, who played by the rules uh, and who made it, who are then used to chastise uh, everyone else. And so, I mean, that that's part of the- I think part of the um, the surprise, I guess, for some um, in the, the public responses to the, the Me Too campaign um, is that the appearance of women in positions of authority um, and power, you know, has been presumed to uh, sort of um, perhaps cover up uh, the extent to which, um, you know, men continue even in the most uh, uh, powerful positions uh, in this country, from the presidency to the Congress uh, to the the highest levels of of business in this country, uh, where you have men who continue to uh, see women's uh, bodies as existing for their own personal gratification, um, that the success of people like Hillary Clinton and other women who hold positions of power has obscured the extent to which 
uh, this kind of thing is is pervasive um, in our society. And, you know, I think that that this uh, the 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 rep the issue of representation and diversity um, and all of the the kind of corporate um, buzzwords that get around um, the need for anti-racism uh, and the need for uh, affirmative action um, and the need for redistributive um, policies uh, that that's part of what the left has to um, that's part of what the left has to articulate. And I think that the Combahee statement uh, gives us an opportunity and a platform uh, against which to um, have these conversations and continue to have these discussions. You take this on in the introduction to the book. You write, the number of Black women who are wealthy and elite is small, but they are extremely visible and influential. They, as so many other Black wealthy and influential people, are held up as examples of American capitalism, as just and democratic. And you point to Michelle Obama's 2016 DNC Mm. speech as a case in point. That is the story of this country, the story that has brought me to this stage tonight, the story of generations of people who felt the lash of bondage the shame of servitude, the sting of segregation, but who kept on striving and hoping and doing what needed to be done so that today I wake up every morning in a house that was built by slaves. And and, and I watch my daughters, two beautiful, intelligent black young women, playing with their dogs on the White House lawn. And and because of Hillary Clinton, my daughters and all our sons and daughters now take for granted that a woman can be president of the United States. Don't let anyone ever tell you that this country isn't great. That somehow we need to make it great again. Because this right now is the greatest country on earth. What was it about Michelle Obama's speech that for you was such a glaring example of what's wrong with this sort of representational perversion of what... intersectionality and identity politics are supposed to be about and with liberal feminism and black liberal feminism more specifically? Well, part of it was the, the, the context. I mean, the democratic national convention, um, in the, the summer of 2016 was surreal, um, in many ways. Um, the, the Democrats had early on, they knew that Trump's entire campaign posture um, had been a, a sort of, you know, his inauguration speech the, has been popularly referred to as American carnage. And that was uh, kind of the tenor of the, um, of the campaign speech uh, or, or of the, the, um, the convention. 
And so the Democrats decided that they were going to um, be the party of optimism. Uh, and, you know, they were going to run uh, the America is already great um, campaign. And so I think that there was something very stark and incongruent uh, with that, given the context, the greater context of what was happening um, in the United States, particularly with Black Lives Matter, um, that for, you know, two years, uh, almost to the date of the uh, DNC, that you have a Black social movement organizing around the elemental declarative plea almost that Black Lives Matter. And here you have the Black First Lady with the, you know, the, the, the first Black family, the first Black president extolling the, you know, the virtues of America is the greatest country uh, on earth. Or, you know, Barack Obama, when he was running for president, always liked to say that uh, his story was only possible um, in the United States and that this was a part of um, the, the exceptional, the, the exceptionalism uh, of the United States. And there was something that was quite jarring uh, to me about that. And this, this in, in some ways is typical of American society, that even among the, the elite and the political uh, elite, of which I certainly consider uh, Barack Obama and Michelle Obama to be a part of, that they delude themselves because of their complete isolation from the everyday lives of ordinary working class black people. But the greater political establishment deludes itself because of its distance from the lives of ordinary uh, working class people in general um, into thinking that this country is something other than it is. Now, some of that is just politics, you know, I think, I think that that in some ways reflects the, the sort of uh, third grade level of political discourse that exists um, <laughs> in country where everything is center rights and cute statements and that. But there is something to be said about what it means to have a president uh, who is a billionaire. Congress is now made up mostly of millionaires. That these people have no idea what it is, what life is like for regular people, let alone for poor people. And that that ignorance extends to the popular culture, it extends to the mass media, so that the lives of working class people and the lives of poor people are erased. They do not exist. And so for these people, they live in a bubble. And I think for a, a lot of the, the kind of chattering liberal class, uh, that they also live in profound ignorance about what this country is actually like for most people. That not only are there 50 million poor people that live in the United States, and given the, the idiotic way in which we calculate that, you can just add another 10 or 15 million 
on top of that. Because if you make $1 over the poverty limit, you're no longer poor. You know, if you make $10 over, you're no longer poor. Um, and so you can add several more million people to that. And they, they just, they, they have no idea that in this richest country in the history of humanity, that there are people who are hungry. There are people who do not know where they will sleep at night. There are people who die because they cannot afford basic health care. And so it means that it's not, so I guess my point is that it's not just political posturing, I think, when people like Michelle Obama, you know, make comments like that. And Hillary Clinton made an equally uh, absurd uh, statement uh, on the campaign trail um, in May uh, of that same summer, where she said that, you know, the United States was the last best hope for Earth. And some of it is political posturing, but most of it is that these are rich people at the helm of the country, and they actually have no clue. You could almost say that the American government ha- is uh, but a committee for managing the common affairs of the whole bourgeoisie. Yeah. I'm, you- <laughs> <laughs> and so I thought that for me, and I think for for many people who had paid attention to um, to Black Lives Matter, who had seen themselves as a part of the movement, Um, even if, you know, if, even if that meant just going to a protest, that it was a, it was a strange statement to make that, um, the United States was, uh, you know, the greatest country on earth, but it was also the, the idea that, that somehow it's supposed to translate to the rest of us that you wake up in a house built by slaves, um, and that somehow the, that is meaningful. That that changes where everyone else is waking up. Yeah. And I know that for black people, that there is a symbolic importance um, of the Obamas. And, and I actually, I, I don't think that that is a, is a, I don't think that that's a terrible thing, but I do think that for most black people, um, we want and deserve more than, uh, than symbolic victories at this point in time, having been in this country for this long. So I have a multi-part question for you. One, what sort of politics was Kumbahi responding to in the 70s? One, in terms of the socialist movement. Two, in terms of the black feminist, the black movement. Three, and three, in terms of the feminist and lesbian movements. If you could just lay out a little bit of the political landscape at the time, where Kumbahi saw problems, and what sort of new black feminist politics they were trying to articulate to advance all three of those movements. One thing that stuck out to me was their embrace of the identity of third world women and that so many of them seemed to have been radicalized by the movement against the Vietnam War. The women from the the, the Combahee um, had come of age politically as part of uh, the broader left. Um, so, for example... Um, Beverly Smith uh, had been active in uh, civil, I mean, both both Beverly and Barbara had been active in civil rights organizing um, as, as high school students in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, they were both part of the Congress of Racial Equality. Um, Beverly talked specifically about helping to organize freedom schools 
uh, when there were student protests against school segregation um, in Cleveland. Uh, but Barbara Smith, in particular, um, uh, had seen herself as definitely part of the anti-war movement um, in the late 1960s. She went to college in 1968, uh, or began college in 1968, and actually had traveled to uh, Chicago for the Democratic National Convention and was involved um, uh, in the police riot that took place there. Um, and so she certainly saw herself um, as part of uh, the left, part of the anti-war movement, um, and uh, credits that with helping uh, to develop her uh, politics, uh, per particularly um, her interest in Marxism. Uh, Demita Frazier uh, was also very involved in the anti-war movement um, as a high school student. She went to uh, a high school on the north side of Chicago, um, where it was a high school. She was in a in a uh, a special academic program, which took her out of her South Side neighborhood into a mostly white Jewish high school um, on the north side of, of Chicago, where many of the students' parents um, had survived the Holocaust, and so there was a um, she describes it almost palpable uh, sense of obligation in opposing the Vietnam War. Um, Demita was also uh, involved in the uh, Black Panther Party briefly, uh, but long enough to have uh, she told me a harrowing story about bagging groceries to give away uh, with Fred Hampton the night before he was assassinated um, by the Chicago police and the FBI. Um, and, and that he that was one of the nicest guys in the group who yes. wasn't hidden on her. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so this was, you know, these are people who came to Combahee uh, with politics, um, but also with experiences uh, that shaped their uh, attempts to make a different kind of intervention. Um, and so within the socialist movement, um, they felt that the, the socialist movement was mostly white, mostly male, um, and that there was uh, almost a kind of uh, doctrinaire uh, sensibility about it in which the uh, particular experiences and problems of, of uh, you know, black women, uh, women in general, um, were, were left out. Um, and I think Demita and, and Barbara felt that they could not have a political home uh, within the left um, because of that. Uh, conversely, within the black movement, um, especially later in the 1960s, uh, as nationalist politics begin to arise and, and dominate uh, the various um, uh, organizing efforts uh, within the black struggle, uh, that again, they felt that there was no political home for them there because of uh, not just a kind of um, marginalization um, of uh, black issue, of black women's issues, but in some cases a hostility uh, to the issues that were important to black women, particularly concerning um, reproductive um, issues of reproductive justice, uh, including abortion rights, which um, you know many uh, cultural nationalists, in particular. Uh, viewed as genocide, 
um, against uh, the black population, that this was killing black, uh, uh, black babies. Um, and there was also, you know, when the Moynihan uh, report came out in, in 1965 that sort of blamed black women for emasculating black men as the genesis of uh, the, the, the so-called crisis in black families, um, many, you know, black nationalists did not take issue um, with that analysis. And so the, the Demita and, and Barbara felt uh, that they had no home uh, within the black, uh, um, uh, black nationalist organizations um, that were dominating the political movement at that time. And then in terms of the, uh, you know, in the, the women's movement, there were the, the, the issues that I spoke of earlier concerning um, the, the inability to grasp uh, the impact of racism um, as, a, as a feminist issue. Uh, but within uh, lesbian circles, there was almost a kind of apolitical retreat into, um, you know, uh, their internal lesbian life. separatism. Yeah, that was expressed through the politics of separatism, uh, which they, the the women of Combahee, um, also rejected. And their, you know, response was kind of like even given the the difficulties that we are having with black men um we hope to convince them we hope to win them uh to understanding the centrality of um black women's freedom uh to their own and we, we can't do that by uh separating off uh uh from them as a matter of of principle uh, as a matter of politics um and so th it left them uh, to chart their their own course, which I think that um, the Combahee statement is uh, indicative of that. And they're, um, they're, you know, for many of the reasons that we, we've talked about in terms of identifying the way that Black women uh, were, were radicalizing, discussing entry points into um, political activism, but putting this within to a larger context not just of anti-capitalism uh, in defining themselves as socialists, but also seeing their struggle as part of um, as, as part of a, a, a much larger uh, movement of Black and Brown women, what they refer to as Third World women um, around uh, around the world. And to some extent, this may seem um, uh, unique or different in our worldview. Uh, today, where they're outside of, of really the, you know, revolutionary or radical left, um, there's there's very little discussion about imperialism. You know, when there's this haranguing about should the left endorse the Democratic Party, endorse um, Hillary Clinton, it's almost always predicated based on domestic politics and almost never uh, talked about in terms of uh, foreign policy, because if it were, it would make it much harder to carry out uh, that argument. Because for all of the uh, ways that you can point to uh, distinctions between Democratic and Republican approaches to domestic policy, on foreign policy, they um, are almost in lockstep. Uh, and so the, the left avoids that. And at this time, 
and at this time that the U.S. empire is at really at one of its greatest ex- extents globally, it's yeah, no, at, exactly. it, it's invisible. It's invisible domestically. I mean, even even someone like uh, you know Bernie Sanders, once you get beyond of the, the the United States, it just all starts to fall apart. Um, and and that's you know and that that's very unfortunate. In the 1960s, it was different, particularly in the in the black movement. I mean, part of it is that you've got uh, internationally uh, a global rebellion um, that uh, uh, against colonialism. Uh, that black people look to as inspiration um, in resolving the uh, crisis in uh, black urban-based communities um, in this country. And so there was a a much sort of larger consciousness uh, about um, that saw African-Americans as linked to uh, other oppressed uh, black and brown people um, around world. And then there was the U.S. intervention, um, escalation, evisceration, attempted evisceration of uh, Vietnam uh, that called for expressed uh, um, uh, solidarity um, with the Vietnamese people who were being killed uh, with our tax dollars and with uh, the United and and through the, the, the United States military. Um, And so the need for um, uh, solidarity in that context was quite palpable. And it was also given the conditions that African-Americans were experiencing in a very public way. I mean, these movements, the civil rights movement, the the black insurgency of the 1960s were in in direct opposition to uh, the lack of democratic rights for black people, the the ways that black people had been uh, excluded from uh, the the so-called affluence of American um, society, which made the the idea that we were fighting in Vietnam uh, for the sake of of democracy even more uh, ridiculous. And so it made the um, uh, a sense of uh, camaraderie, connection, kinship. Um, with uh, people in Vietnam, but with the third world colonial struggles palpable uh, for black people in a way that seems incomprehensible uh, uh, today. And so in that sense, um, you know, the the document, the the Combahee Collective Statement certainly expressed that. And it was a part of, I believe, it, you know, it was also an expression of the solidarity politics that, again, are also at the heart uh, of this statement, um, but they were not distinguishing themselves, you know, uh, or trying to differentiate themselves, that they were actually trying to make connection. Uh, they were trying to uh, uh, create bonds where um, there weren't necessarily uh, reasons to do so, uh, except for uh, a sense of, of, of solidarity and common struggle. I want to close out by talking about Kumbahi's legacy. To what degree do you think Kumbahi has helped change left politics for the better? To what extent do you see the very same problems they identified as persisting? And to what extent are there a whole new set of problems in left politics that they did not anticipate? And to put a bow on it, where do we go from here? (laughs) Not enough people know who the Kumbahi are. You know, everyone knows... 
has heard this term intersectionality. Everyone knows identity politics, whatever that means today. Um, but very few people know where these ideas and concepts come from. Um, and so my part of my motivation for um, putting this book together um, was that people need to know, and not for the sake of nostalgia, you know, because they existed and, and, and we should know, um, but because their ideas that are in the, the, the statement, um, statement slash manifesto, um, are ideas that still help us make sense of the world that we live in um, and are ideas that can help inform uh, and shape the struggles that uh, we are engaged in now. Um, I think one of the most important aspects of that document uh, is their call, their recognition of the need to act. They call for revolutionary action. Um, and that might seem, you know, obvious in some ways or, um, you know, assumed, but it's not. It's not assumed that, uh, you know, people who recognize that oppression, exploitation exists will act on it or will act in ways that um, help bring struggles forward, um, not just stand still. And so those are those are very crucial because we're constantly told to turn our power and ability to organize, to struggle over to other people. We are told to put our struggles on hold uh, for the, the sake of pragmatism, meaning getting this or that person elected into office. Um, and so to maintain that, no, in fact, the, the, the most significant changes that have occurred in the lives of working class people have come through their own self-activity uh, and organizing and action uh, is, a, is, a, is an important idea. And it's an idea that shouldn't be assumed. And it's an idea that can't be taken for granted. Um, and that is at the heart of, of Combahee. And people, especially the new uh, generation of, of activists um, and organizers who are coming of age today, who've come of age in the last uh, few years, are so disconnected from um, the radical history and traditions of uh, activism, of working class theorists um, that animate the history of this country that, you know, we need to bring those two together. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I enjoy working with Haymarket Books so much um, is because that there is a real uh, responsibility uh, to try to bring these ideas uh, uh, alive and to connect them um, with the generation of activists and organizers uh, today. It's not meant for an academic audience, which, you know, there, there's a great sort of higher level of, of um, more, more people know about the existence of, of Combahee in the uh, academy, thanks to women's studies, which Barbara Smith was uh, one of the uh, foremothers um, of uh, the, the women's studies as an, a, an academic endeavor. Um, the National Women's Studies Association 
just had a, a held a conference in uh, Baltimore uh, a few weeks a few weeks ago in November that looked at the legacy of the Combahee uh, River Collective. Um, you know, and there were over two thousand people in attendance uh, at that conference, um, and so that you know that was very uh, that was very powerful. But I think the um, the importance of the Combahee is is you know, again, not in their, their, their legacy, but in, uh, the, the, the statement, um, itself. Uh, and so I think in terms of, of where do we go from here? I mean, you know, the, the problems are stark. Um, they're right out in the open for everyone, uh, to see. And so documents like this help connect us to a, a radical past. Um, but also in doing so with ideas that help us make sense of, of the world that we live in um, and, and connect us to traditions uh, that look to our own activity uh, to confront them. You know, are there some things that are different uh, today than, than there were when they were writing this 40 years ago? Sure. I mean, I think that there's more, in some ways things are 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 much worse, like the public infrastructures um, that uh, were just beginning to come under attack in the 1960s uh, or in the 1970s have been completely uh, eviscerated today. The capital has a much uh, stronger grip on all aspects of our uh, society, including the state um, itself. And, and, you know, so those add uh, complicating uh, factors, but I think at the heart of it, the identification of this oppression and exploitation with uh, capitalism, uh, that the need for socialism uh, is a very basic idea that the vast majority of people who create the wealth in society must have democratic control over it and have a say over how its resources and wealth are distributed um, is more important today than it's ever been uh, in the history um, of this country. Uh, and so at its core, you know, it's the same dynamic that uh, prompted the formation of things like the Combahee 40 years ago continue to um, exist today. And so we can use that document as uh, not just a source of inspiration, which all good ideas, all clear well-written, well-articulated ideas are always a source of inspiration, um, but also uh, a guide to, to action and what needs to happen to not just be in the fight, but how do we rebuild uh, a left that, uh, you know, not only incorporates the um, an understanding of inequality, but understands oppression as well? How do we rebuild a left like that? Um, that can, uh, you know, help uh, do those things that are, are so critical to saving the planet and saving our lives at the same time. Kianga Yamada-Taylor, thank you so much for coming back on and for putting out this important book. Thank you for having me, Dan. I love your show. Thank you. Kianga Yamada-Taylor is Assistant Professor of African American Studies at Princeton University and the author of How We Get Free, 
Black Feminism and the Combahee River Collective, and From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. Thank you for listening to The Dick from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after writing to Abraham Lincoln that the war against chattel slavery might finally allow the white worker to better recognize his own class exploitation, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please take a moment to leave us a review. For whatever reason, those reviews do seem to help put us in touch with new listeners, which all in all is a good thing. Also a good thing, telling your friends about the show. If there's a particular episode you really like, tell them about it. Post it on Facebook, Twitter, whatever. We appreciate all propaganda on our behalf. We also appreciate you supporting the show financially. If you haven't yet, go to patreon.com slash the dig and chip in five bucks a month.